notes to Psalm 139, to the choir master, Psalm of David. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This last Tuesday, January 22nd, the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, State of New York passed a law that effectively takes away any possible restrictions on abortion. In the state of New York now, and doctors in the um, NICU could be fighting to save the lives of babies, while on the other, another floor of the same hospital, they can be legally dismembering a baby that is older from a gestational standpoint. A culture that claims that it believes science is the highest authority that can be appealed to has decided that it is the physical location and the faith of the mother that determines whether or not 
a baby as a person or a parasite. They could care less about science when it can't serve their desire to rebel against God. In New York now, a convicted serial killer cannot be put to death legally. But a baby that is literally minutes away from birth has no such protection if the parents have second thoughts about whether or not they are ready to start a family. So I'm guessing that there were many Christians like myself who had the the words of Psalm 139, especially verses 13 through 16 going through their minds and their hearts this week. As more and more of this story was shared, Um, but, but as I read through Psalm 139 in its entirety, it took, took on a new significance to me. As they released the video of the crowd of people cheering and applauding when it was announced that the bill had passed, like, like spectators in the Roman Colosseum joyously cheering as they watched the lions ripping people apart. And then when they lit up the World Trade Center in bright pink, to celebrate the victory, just like Nero would use humans as fuel for his torches and his celebrations. I was able to see, as I read this psalm, and understand the the heart of David in a way that I don't think I ever was able to before. So as we struggle to live in a world that is just growing in wickedness, We need the message of this entire psalm to prepare us. If you're familiar with this psalm, then you know that we typically stop reading it after verse 18. Maybe pick it up again in in verse 23. We don't like 19 through 22 because they don't sound very Christian. You don't see, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God, at the bottom of Thomas Kincaid paintings. They're just not there. But when you properly understand the magnificent picture of the character and the attributes of God that is painted in the first 18 verses, and you let that inform how you understand what is actually being said in those verses, then some sense can be made of them. So so what I want us to do today is to Look at the presentation of the attributes of God that we see in Psalm 139. This isn't going to be an anti-abortion sermon, although there will be implications that come from that. But we're going to look at the, the attributes of Psalm 139. The attributes of God we see in Psalm 139. And we're going to see what they look like, what David does as he relates those attributes to us personally as he shows how God relates to us with those, and and then we're going to discover what our response should be to those truths. The two points of this sermon will be, point number one, his attributes, and number two, our reaction. There'll be some sub-points also. So the the first point in, in the outline will be his attributes, and we will have Three subpoints under that, and they're they're the what we call the omnis of God. Subpoint A, God's omniscience. B, His omnipresence. And C, His omnipotence. 
And this is actually the way that the first 16 verses of Psalm 139 are usually broken down. But we're going to be going through all of Psalm 139, so it's going to be very broad brush strokes. So it's outlined this way. This, the verse 16 verses are outlined for us uh, by, uh, by David. It's an easy outline to follow. In this psalm, David uses, we see him use the uh, pronouns for himself. I, me, those types of pronouns. He, he uses them over 50 times throughout the psalm. That's, that's more than two times per verse. So, so if you only knew that fact and, and you hadn't read this psalm, it would probably cause you to think that this psalm maybe isn't really about God. But... Just reading the psalm once, as we did this morning, is enough to demonstrate just how God-centered this psalm is. So, using some of, some of the most beautiful language imaginable, David describes some of the most incomprehensible attributes of God as best he can in human language. So, so when you combine the, the two facts uh, that David talks about himself a lot in this psalm, while understanding, while he also maintains the centrality of the character of God, then it makes it obvious that this psalm is about how these great attributes of God interact with us. And you'll notice that these truths are very encouraging to David. So, so often, these three attributes of God are magnified in such a way that they should, they should strike terror in those who do not know God, and, and rightly so, they should. The fact that God knows all, sees all, and controls all should be terrifying to one who is living in rebellion to Him. But what David does here is he takes, he takes great joy and comfort in these great truths because of the relationship that he knows that he has with God. And so should all who count themselves as God's children. So, sub-point A is omniscience. God's omniscience. We see, those, see that in verses 1 through 6. And we'll read that, those again. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So you can see, right? You can easily see the omniscience of God throughout these verses. But, but it's in such a way that it's, it's personal, it's intimate to, to David. The, the first verse says that he searches us and that he knows us. The, the truth that God knows everything, knows everything that can be known, is such a great and amazing truth, but it's so, so awesome to see David bringing those implications of that truth down to the personal level. So we usually think of it in terms of, and, and rightfully so, again, he, he knows every star by name, um, e- even the ones we haven't discovered yet. God knows them. He knows the exact number of breaths that every living thing will take. He knows what is happening in the center of the earth 
right now or, or what's going on in the deepest part of the ocean or on the most remote corner of some planet in some galaxy that we haven't discovered yet. God knows everything all, all the time. Everything that's going on all the time. And, and David now takes that truth and he says, this same God, that same God who knows those things has a personal relationship with me and knows me even better than I know myself. The word searched, that indicates that he does, that God is doing a, a diligent study of you. He, he knows all your actions and he knows your heart and he knows the motive behind your actions. He searches you. He knows you. He has an exact understanding of who you really are. The problem with this verse is that most people read it and they hear that as a warning. God searches your heart. He knows whether or not you, he knows whether or not you did something or you didn't do something. He knows why you did it. So you better watch out. It's, it's kind of like that. That doesn't fit. That type of thinking doesn't fit with the, with the tone of this psalm because David is encouraged by this truth and he is, he is glad that God knows him like this. And in a similar way, verse, verses 2 and 3 is a, it talks about how God knows it encompasses everything that we do. God knows, God knows every action we take. He knows every emotion that we have. He knows every thought that we have. He knows every decision that we make why we make them. And again, so often people hear verses like this and they take them as a warning. Like, God knows everything you do, so, so you better behave when no one's around. Like We might use that as a parent. And, and then again, in, in verse 4, it says He knows every word we will ever say before we even say it, before we speak it. It's not just that He knows what you are going to say before you say it. It's not like you, you might know your spouse or your, your best friend so well that you complete your sentences. It's not, not in that type of way. It says he knows each word altogether. Altogether. That means he knows why you said it and whether or not you meant it the way that it sounded, whether or not it really just slipped. He, he knows that. We might say things uh, that, that we know are wrong, and God knowing it all together means that he knows, he knows of ways that that thing we said is sinful even in ways we didn't understand or know it to be. He knows it that way. He knows it better than us. And again, we, we typically hear this type of language as a warning to us. You better, you know, watch what you say. God knows. God knows. And in verse 5, it says that He hems me in behind and before. Some translations say things like He encircled me or, or He enclosed me behind and before. The, the language is that of, of, of surrounding someone or, or, or keeping them from escaping. And, and actually, even, even that language of laying His hand upon me, like that, that sounds like He's trying to, to keep us from escaping or maybe even in disciplining us. So, so there's definitely a, a case to be made from those first five verses that the omniscience of God, when it, when it relates to us on a personal level, can serve as a, a strong warning to us. 
That we will, we will, we're never going to get it. You are never going to get away with the smallest sin, the, the, the smallest lie or the, or, the, or the most insignificant, as you might think of it, sinful thought. God searches and knows every little part about us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you get everyone else to believe about you. He knows the truth. So there's a, a right sense in which verses one should one through five should be terrifying to some. But but those people are the ones who do not know God. Because just look what David says in verse six. He says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Such knowledge. He's talking about all of these truths that he's just proclaimed to us. He thinks of them as, as too wonderful for him, that he, he can't attain it. These truths are, are bringing joy to David. The fact that God knows him so well brings joy to him. But the person who really belongs to God not only doesn't fear any of these things, but he is genuinely excited about them. Why would that be? Because the one who has turned from their sin and put their trust in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the one who, who knows that they stand guilty before a holy, all-knowing God, and that they, they have no plea of, of, for, for any type of righteousness in themselves, because, because God can see their heart and knows that there is nothing there that could please Him. They trust that when they put their faith in the sacrifice of Christ, that all of their sin, past, present, and future, is paid for fully in Christ on the cross. And since the other part of that transaction is that God also imputes onto them the righteousness of Christ, Verses like those we see in, in, in these first five verses encourage the real child of God. Because real Christians live with integrity before God. It's not that they don't sin, but since they know that God searches them and knows them, He knows how much they actually do hate sin and long to be rid of it. And this, this truth is so wonderful for me to think of. Because, because I know when I fall and I, and I sin, I do it before my wife or before my kids, and I can go to them and I can ask them for forgiveness. But in their human limitations, it's going to be hard for them not to see me at least a little bit differently. But that's not the case with God. He immediately knows my heart. And he knows that my hatred, he knows my hatred for what I just did is sincere. He hears my prayers of repentance to him, and he knows that I have no agenda. It is so good to know because when in, in interpersonal relationships with people, we, we just can't know that for sure. We can, we can want to believe it. We can try. But it's going to be tainted. But God knows the thoughts and intentions of my heart. 
And as one who has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that is of great comfort to me. And Christian walking in integrity before God takes the same joy that David had. No matter what anyone else might think or say, knows that God sees him on the inside. So there are two ways that you can read verses 1 through 5. And, and your standing before God is what determines how you hear it. So if the thought of God searching and knowing you and knowing every action and thought that you have doesn't bring you joy and comfort, then your relationship with God isn't much different than this secular culture that despises the idea of someone watching and evaluating everything they do based on a standard that doesn't allow them to pursue sin and selfishness. So, does understanding the omniscience of God in your life, the fact that He searches you and knows your heart and your motives, does that give you a sense of relief or a sense of dread? So, In the depths of your heart, do you hate sin or do you just want to hide sin? That's what we see here as we see the application of the omniscience of God into, into our lives personally, how we see that. Subpoint B is His omnipresence. Omnipresence, we see that in verses 7 through 12. We don't need to spend as much time on this point, but, but these verses are just a beautiful reminder of the joy that is ours and the knowledge that, is, that, that, that God is always with us. He asks that, that rhetorical question in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? And the answer is nowhere. He uses two pairs of opposites in the next couple of, of uh, verses. If, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take uh, the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, you are there. These two pairs of opposites to indicate that God is, is as high and far uh, as you could possibly go in any direction and everywhere in between. The, the omnipresence of God is another one of those grand truths that could be just a, just a wonderful thing to ponder about how much greater God is than we are. But again, David takes this majestic truth and he personalizes it. He reminds us of how the omnipresence of God should bring us comfort and bring us happiness. We're reminded that His presence means a hand that, that leads us and, and holds us. Both of those truths are wonderful encouragements. We, we describe believers as lost. And then we know that we're not that anymore. And it's not just because we're no longer spiritually blind, but because now the hand of God leads us. We can go confidently. Verses 11 and 12, a little further down, if I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is light with you is saying that there's there's no such thing as darkness to god have you ever thought about that the one who created light does not rely on it 
Just like we talked about earlier, the, the omnipresence of God is a joy to the believer and a terror to the unbeliever. The, the one who lives in the reality of their, of their union with Christ deeply treasures the, the reality that their God is always with them and, and never leaves them for a second. No matter how alone they might feel, no matter who is against them, no matter how confusing things might be, they know that their God is present with them. When they pray, when they pray, they aren't trying to, to do something to get God's attention first because, because their words and even their thoughts have to travel no distance. But to the one who has no real relationship with the Lord, hearing about the personal aspects of the omnipresence of God is and should be terrifying. Because it is, again, a reminder that He knows the real you. Not the one that you are trying so desperately to keep everyone else from seeing. It's a reminder that, that even though you have successfully fooled everyone else in your life, the one who matters most sees exactly who you are and what you live for. It's a reminder of one of my favorite seminary professors would always tell us, who you are when no one is watching is who you really are. This demonstrates what you really believe about God. How do you behave? How do you act when no one else is there? As if you understand the truth of the omnipresence of God, you know that no one else being there is not a reality. So again, the omnipresence of God, the fact that He is always everywhere, including with each of us in a special way at all times, is something that will bring shame to the one who is pretending to be a Christian and gratitude to the one who knows that they have been adopted by God. Next sub-point, omnipotence. The omnipotence of God. This is in the famous passage of verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Once again, the fact that God is all-powerful. The, the, he's the all-powerful one. It is, it's one of the most amazing truths that we can think about, especially as you observe creation, right? Looking up at the stars each night, knowing that they're, that they're, they're, they're actually these powerful suns, some of them even greater in, in, in magnificence and splendor than the sun that we that the lights our entire planet. But, but they just don't appear that way to us because of their distance. You're contemplating the enormity of every star, every solar system, every galaxy, and, and the entire universe. That, that, it causes us to feel small. Dri driving around in the mountains, staring out over the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. 
Not, not only did God invent all of these things, but He spoke them into existence, creating everything through the power of His Word out of nothing. This is one of those mind-bending truths that we love to think about and, and that should cause our hearts to worship. It's one of the things that this type of pondering does is, is that it reminds you of how relatively small and insignificant you are. You don't walk up to the Grand Canyon for the first time and start to think about what a big deal you are. No one does that. No, you, you immediately... I remember when, when we went there, I, I thought I knew what I was going to be seeing because I'd seen all the pictures. But you, you walk up and you look out and you, your heart sinks because <laughs> I am so small. I, God is so big. That, that's why, again, it's so great how, how David brings this amazing truth of the omnipotence of God down to this, this personal level of us, what the omnipotence of God means for us. And we get this picture in these verses uh, of the God who breathes out galaxies doing the tiny, intricate work of weaving together a human being in the womb. It's a different way of thinking of omnipotence because it's not even talking about how God is the, the creator of mankind, but it's truly going into detail about the omnipotent power of God that goes into the creation of each unique individual. To, to truly understand the omnipotence of God in the creation of each individual person. You'd have to have a knowledge of biology that goes beyond even Gary Brotherton. But, but boy, if you were able to attend his class, these words are even more rich to you. That class that Gary taught is appropriately titled, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. In that class, Gary went through each organ and each system in the human body, explaining the unbelievable every, every week he would every week the point was the same god is amazing he explained the unbelievable organization and precision of literally millions and millions of working parts that come together to make each cell and each organ in your body it's it's amazing and if david knew if david knew what we know about all that God was doing when He knitted him together in his mother's womb, if he really knew everything that was encompassed in that little phrase that he just spoke, he might not have been able to continue writing. He is able to praise him, David is, because even in his limited scientific understanding, he can see that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. And we should know even better. There are truths in this psalm that, that through the revelation of not only the, the gospel, but also through science, that we can now see in, in, in a much greater way than David could. And if we can't rejoice with him, what is wrong with us? The word, therefore, for inward parts or, or inmost being, 
It's the, it's the Hebrew word for kidney, um, which, which was, and it's significant that they use that because that, that is the, the word that they would use to not only describe the organ, uh, the kidney, but also to describe the, the seat of the emotions, the same way we talk about the heart or our inward being, or the inner man. So, so what is being said here is that God is in the mother's womb knitting together the inner man and the outer man, the physical and the soul. He's knitting them together in a way that, that we can never comprehend. That's one of the great mysteries that we will never understand. The, the soul and the physical body, how, how, they're, how God puts them together. And it happens here. Verse 15 talks about, it says, the depths of the earth. That's just a poetic way of talking about the womb. And it says it that way because it's trying to emphasize the secrecy of what is going on as God is doing His creation work in the womb. He's pointing out that this is a time when no one else is even aware, even aware of His existence, of David's existence. Only God knows He is there at this time. So think about what this is saying and, and, and just be amazed by the omnipotence and omnipresence of God brought down to the smallest personal level. David is saying, I was with you even as I was being made in the secret. That means before his mother has any idea that there's a baby growing inside of her, God is doing and has already done a work in her that we can't ever comprehend. Before the, before the mother knows about the baby or has any kind of relationship with the baby, God has an intimate and personal relationship with the child already. God personalizes the same omnipotent power that spoke, that spoke the oceans into existence in such a, a gentle and tender way that the mother cannot even feel what is happening inside her yet. The, the personhood of David and the relationship that he has with God begins at a time when only God knows of his existence. This means that there is never a point in pregnancy, by the way, where it is possible for the mother to make a personal decision. There's a relationship between two persons that predates her discovery. He says, David also says, that your eyes saw my unformed substance. And that word that's translated as unformed substance is the Hebrew word for embryo. And it, this, this is the only time where, where this word is used in the entire Old Testament. And notice how it's used. It's used... Embryo is used in an intensely personal way. So far from being thought of as just a clump of cells. And again, now, now we know even better, even better than, than, than David did of, of the unbelievable work that God is doing in the embryo. In our embryonic form, all of the information for who we are going to be from a physical standpoint is already contained there. Right? What, this was mind-boggling to me when, when I found this out. 
already in there is in our DNA is what gender the person is going to be, what color of hair they will have, how long their fingers and toes will be, how tall they will get, even when they are going to go through a growth spurt. It's all there. All of that is there before the mother even knows something's going on. God is displaying power unlike anything we could ever imagine on a microscopic level. Not only that, but not only that, but immediately upon conception, this new person has a has completely different DNA than the mother or the father. And not only that, but completely unique to every other person who has ever lived or ever will live. (laughs) Science has proven the truth that the Bible already clearly indicated. And when someone does decide to have an abortion because they need to wait a few years before they have a baby, they, they don't get to somehow replace that baby. That, that one that was aborted was a unique individual expertly crafted by the Creator who can never exist again. When pregnancy happens, it's not just some scientific reaction taking place. The omnipotent power of the Creator God of the universe is at work knitting together a person whom He is already searching and knowing. David here is not trying to make a pro-life argument. It just makes the case as strong as possible by marveling at the power and care of God. And even as we read something like this, and in our day and time, we can't help but think of how it applies to the current cultural landscape, it is good to be reminded especially in the wake of such disgusting laws being passed, the truth of the sovereign power of God that we see in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So so again, we see David taking an amazing truth about the sovereignty of God, His Lordship over all creation, and bringing it down to a personal level. The the same God who has determined the end from the beginning, the the one who raises up nations and destroys nations, the one who determines how all of history will unfold, also determines our individual lives. He has written the number of days for each individual person. And he apparently begins counting them from the time he begins knitting. He has written the days of each person, even if that number is only one. No matter how bad it gets, nothing happens outside the purpose of God. So even as this is all happening around us, It is not as though God has lost His sovereign control. So now, uh, you can get kind of a picture, right, of what David is doing here in this psalm. He is taking some of the most 
unbelievable attributes of God, these characteristics of God that are so vast and amazing and, and things we, we can never fully grasp and things we could spend our entire lives pondering and never be able to fully understand. You say these attributes that demonstrate that there is, is no end to the length of the gulf between man and his Creator. That demonstrates that we have no business thinking that, that we should ever have any real value or importance to an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent being. He's taking these truths and demonstrating how, how this God in all His glory applies them to ones as undeserving as we are. He, he joyfully delights in the fact that this God in all His might and power has such great care and concern for those who are His. It is unbelievable to think that He would do something like this. Yet David has just taken these last 16 verses to reflect on the fact that not only would God do that, but He has done it. And David also asked, he asked a similar question in Psalm 8, 3 and 4. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is the view that David constantly had of God and of himself. Why would God, why would you, God, how could someone of your power ever care for someone as insignificant and, and as lowly as me? And then in Psalm 139, he takes that and answers it by recognizing that not only is he mindful of me, not only does he notice me, he takes it to the next level and says, but, but I am the work of those very same fingers that made the heavens. My, my very existence displays the same wonder of the Creator. So David's reflection on, on these amazing truths leads to our, our second point, which is our reaction. Our reaction. Reflecting on the attributes of God in such a personal way demands a reaction. It demands a new mindset. And our, our reaction should, should be even stronger than David's, like we pointed out. Because while he is able to see the omnipotent God condescending himself to lowly man in these ways, we are now those who have seen God condescend to sinful man in the greatest way imaginable in Jesus Christ. That, that's what we're told in, in Philippians 2, 6-8 about Christ, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know that truth. Our reaction because we know that should be at least as strong as David's. Maybe stronger. Surely stronger. And we see his reaction in two subpoints here. Subpoint A, reverence. And we see the beginning of that in verses 17 and 18. 
where he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Here we see David exclaiming praises to God. All of these truths have led him to say these things, to be able to say these things. The thoughts of God are so far beyond us. They are too numerous and too magnificent for us. We, we can't even handle them. And pondering all of these things the, to the limits of, of human thinking has caused David to just bow before the mind of God. How can it not do the same for us also with what we know? Sometimes when I'm putting together Lego sets with my son, the instructions will have us do something that seems really weird at first. And then by the time we get done with it, we see that, oh, look, this thing that we did earlier is, causes us to, when we turn this crank over here, it raises the door. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> You think like that. I, I, I'm, I'm always like, wow, who sat around and thought of that? That is pretty creative. That's a Lego set. <laughs> How much more should we stand dumbfounded before the one who invented the atom, the cell, the human heart, the nervous system, and the human brain? Indeed, how precious are his thoughts. How vast the sum of them. The end of the verse implies that, in fact, that, that in his effort to ponder the thoughts of God, David becomes exhausted and falls asleep. And he's pointing out yet another major difference between us and God. The eternal God does not slumber or sleep. He does not get exhausted. Even as He is constantly at work in every place throughout the universe, he cannot expend energy. He is the source of energy. And another thing that just shows the greatness of God compared to us, if, if we were to decide to do nothing but contemplate the thoughts of God, we would demonstrate our creatureliness by falling asleep at some point. Some of us would make it farther than others, but none of us would make it. I mean, th think about this. If you were to get a, so say you get a good night's sleep tonight, you wake up in the morning, get some coffee in you, and determine today, I am going to learn everything that I can, everything that is known to man about the electron. You would completely exhaust your energy and fall asleep before you got through even a fraction of everything that has been discovered about the electron. And, and all of that is just the things that we, we have discovered, that humans have discovered about the electron. There's, there's so much more that God knows about it that we never will. And that's just an electron. Let alone something bigger like an atom. The universe. David points out once again that the amazing thing about all of this is that when we wake up, from this impossible task that demonstrates our absolute futility. This God is still with him. I awake and I am still with you. 
He brings it back around again to to the thing that is even more amazing than the awesome knowledge and power of God is that this God cares for me. And all of that leads us to the controversial verses in 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. One commentator I looked at uh, said of these verses, he said, these verses come like a terrible screeching noise in the middle of this beautiful poem. Like they suddenly came out of left field. And they interrupt the flow. And while they do certainly change the tone of the psalm, what they actually do is demonstrate the response of reverence even more. Because once you read and understand what David is saying here, once you, once you find yourself of the same mind that David has when it comes to the incomparable glory of God and his willingness to express such care and concern for us. Once once you understand that the way David does here, the thing that makes the least sense in the world is the existence of those who would hate and defy this God. I've I've heard others say things about this passage like, like this is an example of David just demonstrating his, his human fallenness by kind of flying off the handle and saying a bunch of not well thought out things. People who offer these interpretations do it because they somehow think they're defending God's reputation. But that's not what's happening. The one who's actually concerned about God's reputation is David. These are not thoughtless words. They're a well-thought-out expression of worship. And we know that from verse 1, right? Look back at the, the very first words of this psalm is, to the choir master. A lot of times we don't think of that as part of the psalm, but those words are in the Hebrew. That's, that's the beginning of the verse. And what that demonstrates is that this was a song that they used for corporate worship. So, so of course it is, it is well thought out and not just thrown together. If there was something sinful in David's expression, they would have left it out. When, when Wren's evaluating music lyrics from the newest Getty song, he never finds the occasion where there's like these three beautiful verses and then one verse where Keith Getty was in like maybe a bad mood and accidentally threw some cuss words in there or something, and, but just went ahead and submitted it anyway. No, that that doesn't happen. How much more, how much more can we trust that the Bible would not do that? These verses are there because when rightly understood, they demonstrate an appropriate response of reverence for God that that the truth of the first 16 verses demands that we have. David is saying that in light of everything, uh, everything, the truths about God that David has just mentioned, it is unbelievable 
that there are those who would not stand in awe of this God and, and, be, and do nothing but be constantly thankful and grateful. And, and every time we, we fail to be grateful and in awe, it just, it just shows how, how little we deserve anything from Him. And, and so it's unbelievable that there would be people like that, that we would do that. And, and there are those that not only don't see this or care about it, but, but would actually, actually take their stance against Him and would dare to make themselves enemies of Him. They would dare to take His name in vain. That, that is the greatest injustice imaginable for David. David's not pointing to one specific person, but rather an entire worldly system that stands against God. There's the singular term for, for wicked, which indicates that this is more of an impersonal group. So, so it's not standing against the teaching of the New Testament like some people say it does. When he says he hates and loathes those who take their stand against God, he is declaring his complete allegiance to God's side. That he is so fully on the side of God that those who make God their enemy make him their enemy also. This is an impersonal group that represents a system of thought or an ideology. It's, it's not like saying, Lord, do I not hate Keith, my atheist coworker, with complete hatred? It's, it's not, that's not, you can't equate that. That's it, not what's going on here. David is saying, I hate what is in opposition to you. And, it, when it, and when it comes down to whose side I'm on, I am so far from neutral that it's the difference between love and hate. Again, this doesn't contradict Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. David is not here talking about offenses that have been done against him. He could easily still love the one who only sets himself up against him. It's not so much that he hates them as it is that he absolutely loves and adores God so much that he cannot stand that which is opposed to God. You see the difference. He's not driven by hatred of others. That's not what's driving him. What's driving him is love and passion for this God who he's just described. Love for God makes him hate that which opposes God. And fueled by this reflection on the unbelievable care and concern that went into the creation of every person and their response to, to use this amazing gift of life to rebel against God and to the, to the bloodthirsty that verse 19 is talking about, who would use the amazing gift of life, the, the, the intricate way that God knit you together to then go on a crusade to destroy that process. That's what he can't stand. This, this, is where, this is actually where the heart of our outrage against something like abortion should come. How dare that even exist? How can there exist such a rebellion against God? The New Testament equivalent of what David is saying here, just in case you didn't think there was one, is found whenever we pray, Come, Lord Jesus. 
We're doing the same thing that David is doing. It's not that we're directly praying that God would justly kill and send to hell all those who are opposed to him. But that is what will happen on that day. What we're saying is, I love God. I love this God who reveals Himself this way in Scripture and has saved me in spite of my unworthiness. I love Him so much that I cannot stand seeing a society that just grows in its mockery of Him. I want it to end. Implicitly, this means that all who are still standing against Him on that day will receive justice. But we are saying the same thing also when we pray as Jesus commanded us to. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this is a prayer that comes from a heart that, that has com- contemplated the greatness of God and, and all of His attributes and is daily humbled by the fact that God would stoop down and save me. Hatred is never a primary motivator. It is always a byproduct of the love we have for God. In fact, in, in light of these truths... In light of these truths and what David is saying here, hating those who have merely wronged someone as insignificant as you, that that actually makes that make less sense. Something as strong as hatred could only ever be warranted by an offense against God. How dare we express that for anything that happens to us? You thinking that you ever have the right to hate someone because of something they've done against you is an audacious act of pride. Our reverence for God is rightly displayed in a longing to see the name of God vindicated and to see an end to all that opposes Him. It's rightly displayed in that. And that leads naturally then to the second part of our reaction to our to our contemplation of the attributes of God, that'd be subpoint B, which would be reflection. And just real quickly in these closing minutes, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Our reverence for God and our desire to see Him receiving the proper honor due His name will lead us to pray the same prayer that David prays here pleading with God to to reveal to us that which He discovers as He searches us. These verses here bookend so nicely with the very first verse. He he wants to know the results of what God is discovering in Him. He's seeing all of the disgusting abominations against God in this society should cause us to dread the idea that there could ever be any part of us that may be leaning the same way. Anything in us that could be mocking the holiness of God. Notice he's not content to to merely repent of actions. He wants more than that. He says, test my very thoughts. I despise and hate sin so much that I want it rooted out in its seed form. He says to try me. Meaning he hates sin so much. Think of that prayer. He hates sin so much that he wants God to put him through whatever he has to in order to expose any sin in him whatsoever. 
any grievous way. And he appeals to God to lead him in the everlasting way or God's way. In other words, he's asking God to continue to make the gulf between his thinking and his desires and what the world desires and prizes even greater. So, is this our desire? When you are praying, is this what you're praying about? As we live in this culture that demonstrates an increasing disdain for God and and continuously mocks Him through things like what we've seen in, in New York this last week, and, you know, see every day in the news, let us all reflect even more on the glorious truths of the character of God. Let's have it cause us to do that. Let's keep focusing on Him and on His glory. Let's long to know Him more and more so that as we live and move around in this culture, we respond to this culture out of a love for God and not mere hatred for evil. Love for God. Let us be those who can never get past our gratefulness to this amazing God. Let's let that be what fuels all of our interactions in this world. We would never be willing to make any kind of compromise with with that which opposes Him, either in this culture or within ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank you for the confidence we can have in it. I pray that what was here today, that you would use the things in this message that are from you to encourage and direct your people. I pray that um, that we would truly be those who aren't marked by what we're against, but by who we're for, and who, who we love, that that would be the foundation for what we're against. That we'd only be against that which is against you. Thank you, God, for the privilege of meeting together, of being called to be a part of a people that gets to worship you and learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen.